This podcast is proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli. Hello and welcome to episode uh, whatever the hell this is of Tamper Tantrum. My name, as always, is Colin Harmon. Uh, I'm joined today not by Steve Layton, um, but instead by uh, a good friend of mine, uh, someone who has been there in, in coffee for me as long as I've been in coffee, if that makes sense, and uh, has always been a good source of uh, advice and inspiration to me. Mr. Paul Stack, how are you today, Paul? I'm very well, Colin. Thank you for having me. That's yeah. me just blaming you for all the stuff that goes wrong there. <laughs> it's, it's definitely Paul's fault. So, um... You, uh, I think you're probably well known to most people that work in coffee today. Uh, and I think we have a joke between us that we see each other most in other countries. So you're, you, you've been kind of uh, threading the floors of all the different shows around the world. Coffee uh, it wasn't your intended destination, is that fair to say? No, uh, no. I mean, my background is in design. Um, and so my, my degree is in industrial design. So I'm an industrial designer is my core degree. And uh, that's what I've done for many, many years. And then my career, as most people start with a profession, is you either stick to that in a sort of consultancy area and very specialist forever, or you tend to grow or get, I suppose, interested in other areas. And uh, I remain uh, consumed by and interested in design and all things industrial design. Uh, but my... Uh, my interests continue to grow as I um, as I worked in design from designer to design manager to R and D manager to strategic R and D stuff uh, to operations management and, and onwards. So yeah, so that brought me into uh, I suppose more of a management role, and uh, and then I ended up um, I worked for a long time in a company in Ireland uh, as an operations director, which designed and manufactured lighting. And uh, there was a time for me to move on. And I was just looking for a role somewhere that I thought would suit me, that I'd like. Uh, I had worked previously in multinationals in mm-hmm. uh, doing product design for uh, for Crops Mullinex Group, which was great learning, great time. And uh, They're similar to Braun or that yeah, kind of thing, is it? Yeah, yeah domestic appliances. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a time when, when I worked in Crops first, it was a time when everything was done under the one roof. Mm. So there was product designers, tool designers, injection molding, metal pressings, wire looms, making transformers, putting the whole things together, testing them and sending them out to the market. Mm. So it was the best university of design ever after I had studied design in university. Yeah. It's an amazing time. Um, but I had lived the corporate world as a designer, didn't like it, knew I wanted to be in smaller territories mm. so after this this lighting thing i did in, in ireland for for a number of years i was looking for an opportunity which i which was small not multinational uh, but could potentially potentially grow and become something and actually a lot of my motivation was i thought that uh i it, this was really serious i was very old i was 35 at the time i thought i was very old i had one daughter who i had to have a solid solid career for or else everything would be ruined and yeah. financial security and all that sort of stuff so yeah and uh, i ended up coming across this company called Marco um, through uh, the business I was in and Marco had used the same consultant for different things. But it, so the, the consultant knew of me and the company I worked with, I knew of Marco. Marco were looking for somebody to come in uh, to support Drury, who is the uh, majority shareholder and, and uh, MD of Marco. And so they put us together and we chatted and I examined them 
like a project as opposed to seeing anything regarding coffee in it that excited me. There was mm. nothing coffee about it that... Did you drink coffee? Treated. I did. I had actually... I had I had spent time working for, for Moulinex in France as a product designer, where I fell in love with what I now know is terrible coffee. <laughs> and I just loved it. My spoon of sugar, yeah. small little, you know, heavy hit of Robusta laden over, roasted over, extracted yeah. rubbish. And I loved it because I had gone from instant to that. Yeah. And it was the whole cultural thing. Oh, it was the, everything. I loved it. And I still, if I go back to France, I really still, part of me loves a cup of shit coffee. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I had the same experience in the back street of a town called Le Goudoua, which is in the south near Montpellier. And that thing of like sitting there with these old men who were playing bowls. And the cigarette smoke wafting yeah, their face yeah, and it's just yeah probably that's it it reminds me of when i smoked and i loved when i smoked yeah, <laughs> we should have got a box of cigarettes yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so anyway um then when i worked uh, it was a company called ventilux when i worked back in ireland they had a little uh, pour over and they had this deal with this company where they sell, sent in pre-ground packs yeah. so we had roast and ground coffee didn't have a clue what was good or bad, but at least I had roasted ground coffee. So I did like my roasted fresh roasted ground coffee. I didn't know anything about quality about it. Mm. And Marco at that time weren't making those sort of small products anyway. So they were a different game. So I, lo- I went to Marco and, lo- and looked at it and examined it from a life potential in terms of would I enjoy it? Would I be professionally uh, enjoy the challenge? And did I think this company had a chance yeah, to go somewhere? Yeah, yeah, where's it going? You're looking for the right trade. I was looking for something. And, and I, even when we hire people now in Marco, and if I'm involved in hiring anybody in Marco, I'm always looking for someone whose personal and professional trajectory is pretty much within a tolerance bandwidth of where the company wants to go and is going. And if they match for a period of years, the, the person and the company can have a brilliant time together. Mm. That, that's what I've found. That makes sense. Before we move on to Marco then, I'm just interested in industrial design. Like, so what was, like, was there a dream job in industrial design? Like, if something you could have worked it out, like, is, was it like cars or was it like, I don't know, is airplanes or is there like... No, I wasn't one of those. Um, I, I love problem solving. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's probably informed where I am now in my, in my job yeah. and what I do. Uh, I, like, I was in college with guys who were singular in their vision of what they wanted to do be it car design, be it multimedia design, because it was a brand new thing, as in it was a really brand new thing 25 years ago, whenever I came out of college. And uh, so I just loved design. I loved the problem solving. I loved the mixture of uh, aesthetic and, and scientific challenges that came with resolving something. I loved this new found thing called ergonomics that I'd never heard of yeah. until I went into college. And uh, so, no, it was a mixture of all those challenges coming together to produce something which solved a problem for somebody. <coughs> and that's, that's the thing. I can't remember where I heard, I heard it recently that design is about how something works, not about how it looks. Design is about solving, is mm. doing a job. Yeah. So, you know, something exists and is, is, a, is a success because it does a job for somebody. It meets a need. I mean, if it looks beautiful, it's an ornament. Mm. If it can be, if it can look beautiful and do a job, then you're you're doing you're good away. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So at that stage, what year is that? I joined Marco in two thousand four, January fourth, two thousand four. So it's just after Christmas break. Okay. And I, I just share with you that day. I walked into the office, not knowing what how one should dress. Yeah. If anybody knows knows Drury, he he's even. Uh, more casual now than he was 12 years ago, 13 years ago when I joined Marco. And now he still dresses 
pretty formally. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, okay, this, uh, you know, and I'd always overdress and be a little bit embarrassed that direction as opposed yeah, to underdress. Yeah. So I arrived in in shirt and tie and all this, and I walked in nervous into my first day and to this cramped little room with uh, um, people working in his very small offices, uh, Drury sitting there. And he looked at me and my first introduction to, the, and I'd spent hours, hours talking to Drury about, you know, before I took the job and we came in. And he looked at me, laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I got over that sort of, uh, that piece and said, okay, where do I go? And so we don't have a desk for you or a computer or anything. So we, we just have to figure that out now. So there was no desk, no seat, no computer. Wow. And uh, upstairs was the, uh, the couple of R&D guys and I was going to sit with them. So I had to go up and say, okay, hello guys, how are you doing? And start by getting myself a desk and a computer right. or whatever and off awesome. we went yeah and and so what how was marco different from how it is then uh, today like is it was it a vastly different country, uh, company was it did it have a focus on uh, well I, I i would like to think that it's not vastly different um and i believe it's not vastly different for the singular reason that Drury is still at, at the helm of the company mm. really and his uh, and just like your company or any other companies who have a strong uh, visionary entrepreneur at the front of it, you can't break that vision mm. unless you get rid of the person. Yeah. You know, that vision remains true. And even when they're gone, you know, it most likely will remain for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I would, I would say it's not changed too dramatically. Uh, what's changed dramatically is the impact of decisions, particularly bad ones. Okay. If you made a bad decision when I joined Marco all those years ago, it was like, eh, okay, all right, and you get over and you move forward. If you make a bad decision now, it could be financially penal. Yeah. Because if we design a product which doesn't succeed, and this is this really, I suppose, is a is a um, it's a commentary on you know bigger versus smaller. Uh, and if you make a, a product now which has to have the reach that Marco now tries to have, mm. it uh, generally means certifications, it generally means tooling, it generally means a lot of investment from a design, tooling and certification viewpoint. And if you get it wrong, all that money's down the toilet. Yeah. Yeah, so... And even like with the work that, that I do with Nuova Simonelli, our kind sponsors today, so ah. I, I squeezed that in there. They, um, and, and just from seeing uh, the work that you guys do, it's incredibly onerous. But there's, like, do you ever look at like these small companies who launch little small little dinky products and they're just wonderfully sexy and mm. cool and they get all the love on Instagram mm. and you're like they have it so easy because you know that they're not taking all the boxes in terms yeah. of yeah yeah no it's fine I, I, I think it's great actually uh, that these small startups and these little dinky things come and happen uh, because it fuels what may may be and, and they're they're unfettered they don't know yet of all of the challenges of doing it properly yeah. <laughs> you know so you know go for it it would be would be mm. my my feeling on it and there's still a whole lot that we don't know as we continue our journey in marco mm. to design new things i mean i i would constantly refer to the number of projects if we were to and it again goes back to my dislike for the multinational approach um is that if i if i was to make decisions or give my own uh, personal view in a Marco project based on, you know, core potential return investments and, you know, accountants would kill half the projects that Marco do. Yeah. You know. And, but then I suppose at the other end of the scale, if, if designers got their way all the time, it would be completely different. Well, there's two things. If designers, if engineers got their way all the time, nothing would look nice and it would be incredibly complicated to operate 
because of course everybody wants to do that with that with the product according to the yeah. engineer as opposed to which comes from my own product design background i always try and push for what are the hidden needs of our users what do people want to do with our products what would they like it to do that they may not even realize they'd like it to do yeah. that's where i would try and push the guys because inevitably and i've been there as a as a designer engineer um they they get so far down a rabbit hole of an engineering problem, you tend to lose why you're trying to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem it lies in the user's experience, not in the fit or tolerance of two pieces of metal or plastic or whatever coming together. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the, the focus uh, changes in a design um, project uh, once it gets into the, the nitty gritty and the people working on the nitty gritty don't often see the big picture. And is it then... Has it over the years become your job like to be less about design and more about finding that that sweet spot between design, engineering, sales, manufacturing? Yeah. <laughs> what, what's my job now is a good question. Well, we do get to chat. We, of, we often end up in this. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, it yeah. needs to be this, it needs to be that. Like, I think that because I'm not designing anymore directly or managing any design projects directly i have the luxury of being able to see it more clearly yeah um and therefore uh i hopefully bring value by pointing out where we may be going wrong on some direction because of maybe that core piece of meeting a hidden need uh, or you get other you know, simpler stuff where decisions are being taken at design level, which is like, guys, that's going to cost a fortune or mm. that's going to break, Yeah. you know, it's, you know it's, or it's not going to be producible if we want to build more than 10 of them in a build run, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I suppose anybody in a senior position has, has the scars of learning through failure mm. and that informs good decision-making in the future. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of sexy little projects on the side... I think most people that are listening to this uh, would probably have been introduced to you uh, through the Uber project. Yes. Which was a sexy little project on the side. It was. And I remember, um, so I was getting into coffee, this is probably 2007, 2008. And then I remember going to London to visit um, Square Mile. Yeah. Uh, so I emailed, the, I emailed James and Annette and uh, told them I was in London. Yeah. Oh, for something else, which I wasn't. <laughs> and if they had a few minutes, could I drop by and say hello? So I was pretty much hanging around for three days, on, kind of on the hope that they would they would have some time. So they brought me in, and I remember they were like, "Oh, would you like some coffee?" And I was obsessed with espresso at this stage, completely obsessed with espresso. And I would re regularly spend a week's wages on espresso. And I go into this place, and I've been trying to learn about espresso for like two or three years. And I walk into the room, like, "Do you want coffee?" I said, "Yeah." And I said, "Oh, I'll just have an espresso." And they're like. Oh, we don't like espresso anymore. We drink filter coffee now. <laughs> and I was just like, what? And I, to me, it seemed like that the Uber project landed uh, at precisely the right time. And not just like, not that it got lucky, but drove that as well. That's, um, that's probably being, in, in my mind, over complimentary to, to the Uber boiler driving it. I think it was, it was good timing. Um, and, and there was probably an element of, of foresight, certainly on Square Mile's part and James and Annette's part, and hopefully of ours and Marco. But yeah, I mean, what happened was, uh, what ha I bring it back a little bit further, right? Um, when I joined Marco first, as I explained, it was really about 
the those challenges that I enjoyed troubleshooting in terms of I'd come from a very cost sensitive industry mm -hmm. so I could see cost savings everywhere so we could improve margin mm -hmm. on, on, the, on the products uh, also I saw that there was a passion to design stuff well that Drury had and therefore that matched mine and but none of this was about coffee yet it was about product design and industrial design and operations management all the stuff that I had worked on yeah uh, the fact that I'm a bit of a foodie and I'm I like like anybody in in, in specialty coffee they're always going to enjoy food and different, well, everybody enjoys food or they die. Uh, but, you know, going to enjoy different stuff. And, um, but when I saw what the two guys were doing in R&D, which was effectively using um, the SCAA basics of, of brewing by Ted Lingle as a text for making coffee brewers, right? So they were using the, this, um, this text on how to brew coffee to inform them how they make coffee brewers. And part of that, of course, was out with what are now kind of uh, an archaic technology of using the uh, the electric probes, if you like, you know, in terms of uh, using the TDS meters to yeah. measure extraction of coffee. And I thought this was brilliant because it's, uh, I suppose, it tickled my fancy of understanding what's happening in this problem of brewing coffee mm -hmm. in a way that was uh, transferable, as opposed to anybody who I met in that first year of coffee was really explaining coffee to me in a sensory way and in a in a sort of you know strong weak mouthfeel bright you know and you can't tell if they're talking shit or they uh, don't no at that stage i i was uh, going what the hell is this guy talking about yeah. you know and uh, i could relate to it when they spoke about this feeling in wine or that feeling in a lemon you know in terms of citrus or whatever but i really you know was was not i was not capable of grasping it quickly Whereas what the guys were doing in R&D, I was capable of grasping mm. in, in a day because I read the book, yeah. you know, the, the small little version of the big book. I went on to read the big book, went in 2005 to Seattle to uh, the SCAA show over there, did the Golden Cup course, the brewmaster course that we basically took that on and made, made the brewmaster course in, in Ireland or in, uh, in, in SCA in, in Europe. And I took that and I said to the guys in Marcos and to Drury, really, because everything was discussed between me and Drury at that stage. I said, this is brilliant. We should share this with our customers so they understand where we're coming from. Mm. So we started on this thing in Ireland of sharing what we're doing, how we design machines on the basis of, I suppose, again, goes back to my product design background of what are we trying to do, which was to make the coffee nice in a cup. And it was a very sensitive time because the, the roasters were basically looking at us saying, who the hell do you think you are telling me how to brew coffee? You, yeah. you bend metal. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to be very sensitive saying, look, we know nothing about coffee, guys, but we know about extraction. So we changed the, dis the discussion to be from coffee to extraction. Yeah. And, and around that time, uh, Joe Smith, who's uh, the Irish sales manager in Marco, was on the board of SCAE and was central in uh, this concept of the European Team Coffee Challenge yeah. in Dublin, uh, which I ended up running. And uh, so I ran that in 2006 and I presented on filter coffee extraction at that. And that got amazing feedback from the Bristol community there because it just wasn't out there at that time. And in specialty coffee shops, well, in Europe, because I know it's a, it's a big thing in, in, uh, in, in the States and it always has been, but at the time in Europe, specialty, or like... First time I met Steve. Yeah. At the, Euro the European Team Coffee Challenge 2006. Yeah, he met, and, but was filter coffee... It wasn't really a thing, especially mm. it was all like flat whites. And no, filter coffee was the evil one. Yeah. Right. So, um, from a, from a Marco viewpoint, we wanted to share how you do this stuff properly. 
right, in terms of brewing stuff properly. But it's clever as well to say, sorry to interrupt you, but the, like to, to say that you changed the language to extraction because then you're not telling people how they should roast their coffee or what's good or bad or how it tastes. You, see, you can all have the same extraction and have different tasting coffee. Yeah, exactly. So we, we took what we felt that was supposed to be our expertise and shared what we thought were the right things to do in that. Mm. And then we felt that if our customers, our prospective customers, knew that we understood how to brew coffee, yeah. that they would trust our machines would do the same for them. And therefore they could choose if they wanted to put good or bad coffee into that process in terms of their own standards, be they quality or cost. So that started that journey uh, which meant that we now had a deep understanding of what affects brewed coffee. We also had technology which manages hot water and pours it from under the counter to over the counter. And when I was, I used to do the, this lecture circuit then uh, with SCAE and I was at Cafe Culture 2008, I would guess. Um, and James and Annette had just done a talk on either espresso or cupping, can't remember which. And I had done a talk on filter brewing and uh, on filter brewing extraction. And, uh, and afterwards, we were cleaning up and uh, they, we were chatting and they were saying, we really want a thing which does this, which was effectively a beautiful thing under counter, which allowed them to showcase the coffees that they were buying and roasting. Mm -hmm. And in, in, there was two things which, which stuck with me on that. One was to try and showcase the quality and the other was to justify the price they were going to try and ask people to to pay for this coffee because at that point they were looking at doing retail yeah right so so that started the conversation and uh i was i suppose again i go back to drury and marco i was like all over this it's like this is this is exactly what i love personally this is what i'd love to do and uh i went and said to drury indulge me on this one i think that we will learn a lot and i think that these guys are obviously at the uh, the, the zeitgeist of where you know where coffee's going in this in this sort of move and specialty coffee so it's perfectly aligned to where we want to bring our brand anyway and indulge me and going back to our earlier piece about doing small sexy projects we basically limited the scope to being we will make one possibly three of these and we will cover all the design costs and we asked James and Nett to cover the material costs and let's see what happens. Mm. And that was the scope of the project. No money changed hands ultimately, actually. What happened was, was Square Mile got three free Uber boilers. For that, and that's what we did collaboratively. If anybody's talking about like, like SEAE, SEA now, if anybody talks about the power of collaboration, there's the Uber boiler in, wow. in, example, in the example of that. So we went and did it and we made one and, uh, and it worked. And it, it showcased what filter coffee could be, which is, a, which is the hidden need of what people wanted to know. I mean, all this ties in with the growth of, you know, culinary, um, foodie culture was, was exploding. People wanted to know both provenance of food and exploration of sensory. And all this stuff tied in with what engineering could deliver. So it's timing and, and, and innovation of, of meeting that need. And it, it was, it's been amazing for us in Marco in terms of what it did for our brand. Amazing for me, uh, personally and professionally to have been involved in something like that is hugely satisfying and it, uh, it, it, it's nice that it's part of the narrative of filter brewing in coffee which is where you started yeah because uh, at the time when it, when it was launched it was um, I think there was five of them out there early on and I think like one of them was at Square Mile there was one of them in Scandinavia where I think was it Johanna Nystrom or somewhere like that or no I can't remember I'm going to try and think back now you, I cut them on the hop. Where did the first? Well, I tell you now where they went. Actually, 
it, it was launched in KTEX, which is the Irish um, uh, hotel and catering show, in February 2009. Mm-hmm. And when I say launched, it was, as Marco have done for, for a long time, or certainly since then, put innovative solutions on the bar in a, an exhibition which showcase our innovative uh, capabilities, but not necessarily product we can sell. Yeah. And we've continued to do that. And they're become our, they're our small, sexy projects that we try and keep alive through the Uber project. And uh, so we, we showed it to showcase our knowledge, but not to sell it. Mm. And, the, uh, and really what happened then is down to James. Because James went, James and I sat down, had a, a, a probably a bottle of water as opposed to a cup of coffee in the in the RDS, which is the location in Dublin. And uh, I said, there you go. So what happens now? And he says, well, I'm going to write a blog about it. What do I call it? I said, it's, it's the square mile boiler as far as we're concerned as a working title. What do you want to call it? Yeah. And uh, he wrote down on a piece of paper in front of me, the Uber boiler. And um, which I'm sure he's uh, quite embarrassed about the fact that it came from some video game that he used to play or oh, something. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because Uber uh, means under as well. Isn't Uber it? means like the uh, the the best of. But doesn't the literal word means under? As far as I'm aware. Ask the German friends. Okay. I thought it meant the the best of Uber of. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know yeah, in that yeah, context, yeah. but I was maybe, maybe it does. Maybe it does. But uh, so anyway, I said fine. Call it the Uber boiler. And that's how it got its name, actually. And uh, so James blogged about it and it went nuts because, of course, again, in terms of timing, you had the whole barista community who were technologically savvy and connected. And therefore, this became a story. And uh, and of course, it was uh, perfectly launched, if you like, off the back of what Clover had done and what those guys had done in terms of single serve and filter being sexy. That was just at the point where they were bought out by... yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was probably... So there was a gap there that you just left Well, not, ju- not just a gap, because it didn't really fill that gap. Yeah. But there was a discussion yeah. around filter coffee and what Clover was trying to do, which enabled a discussion about, you know, a $10,000 machine mm. and now this 4,000 uh, 4, euro water boiler. And, it, you know, it was like, what the hell is going on here yeah. with filter coffee? And... Uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the most infamous remark from uh, to be unnamed leader of uh, in the Irish coffee industry at that show was like, huh? <laughs> it's only a fucking water boiler. <laughs> and that's what it was. Like, that's what it is. Because I'm actually looking up here. It actually means over, which is yeah, over. even uh, yeah. more uh, complicated. Yeah. The, um, because we, we took, you guys made it incredibly easy for us to get a hold of one um, which has always been greatly appreciated and there was a time I remember we took great pride in being the only shop in in the world that had one because Square Mile didn't have a shop yeah yeah of <laughs> and course, yeah. there was I think there was two or three were, were you the first retail space mm. oh, forgot we, I remember yeah. it was um, there was a few in, in roasteries around the place mm-hmm. and then very shortly after that yeah and you asked that question sorry for interrupting you asked that they were the first run was three and it was Square Mile Roastery, Intelligentsia Roastery, and Counterculture Roastery. That's it, yeah. That's where they went. Yeah. Um, and it was the thing, because, like, in the context of our shop, which which was, like, a dingy, dirty, uh, dark nightclub, people would come in and go, and there would be a gap in kind of, like, is this good or is this is it not good? And we could point it and go, well, this is a 4,000 euro kettle. And, like, you're talking about people taking the piss out of it for that. It became a source of pride for that, which mm. made people go, Oh, there, there must be something to this. And why would you? Yeah. And all of a sudden, we could sell filter coffee mm. yeah. because it's people listening in the states probably don't fully appreciate how difficult it is to do that in this part of the world. Yeah. And even still today, it's it's not. I mean, every all the brisses, all the brisses love filter coffee, and they'll all enter the air press competitions. Yeah. They all have a Chemex at home. Yeah. But how many shops can you go to? 
Yeah, not very many. And in fact, the Uber boiler was never designed really to be a coffee shop tool because it really, again, back to that question of if you were to have an accountant look at it, it it's non- nonsense to spend that money to brew a cup of coffee which ties a barista to a device for that amount of time for one cup of coffee. Yeah. So it's a statement of intent. Mm-hmm. When people put it into their coffee shop, it became a statement of intent, mm-hmm. which then, of course, evolved into the aesthetic being desired as a a bit like having your Strata or your Black Eagle or your whatever as a statement of intent for a coffee shop. Yeah. So people are are signaling their um, their focus, or else they're trying to mask their lack of focus <laughs> on specialty coffee. Yeah, and it's one of the funny things that happened over the years was that Squarebile put one into Penny University, the yes. pop up that they had, and then very slowly a few of them one appeared at Proofrock, and then they just, a few places started to appear, and then they were they were quite prevalent in the best shops. But when you went to Square Mile, uh, to Penny University, there was a long counter and there was, I think, five seats at that counter. Mm-hmm. And on the far left-hand side of the counter was an Uber boy. Mm-hmm. And they would fill their kettles mm-hmm. and they'd come back and they'd pour coffee. Mm-hmm. So we would get visitors from the UK who'd be in Dublin on their holidays and they'd come in and we'd have a Chemex underneath the font, you know, and which is how you'd use it. Doing it correctly. Yeah, yeah. And they, people come and go, why are you using it like that? Or they go, that's a great idea. And I'm like... But that's that's what it was designed to do. But it, it, it suddenly went somewhere else and it became that, like a hot water tap that you just fill up with on the side. Yeah, and it is the most uh, frustrating and also hilarious um, piece of almost, you know, weekly or monthly life, certainly would, in, in Marco, where someone would find another picture of somebody filling a kettle with an Uber boiler. Yeah. It's like, this is idiocy. Because it's uh, a scale. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I've never actually uh, realised that I should probably blame James for, for, <laughs> for that because everybody followed what James did. <laughs> but I uh, thank him for obviously pretty much launching the product. <laughs> yeah, because it takes like, all the benefit of the, the weighing and the, and the temperature stability and all that, but mm-hmm. it definitely had a massive impact. So then, like, I think, like, spe- Filter Coffee has really taken off in Ireland in a very weird way in the sense that everybody loves it everybody is into it all the baristas are down with it this is our thing and yet like there's probably only like three or four shops that jump to mind that, mm. that do enough of it that it's done well I, i'm i'm giving you a funny look because i'm thinking everybody is into it no i don't think everybody's into filter coffee well put it this way is everybody who's into it serving it yeah, well that's that's probably not true either because either you get the in this in this speciality community in in Dublin or in Ireland now, because certainly there's a lot going on around the country. Um, there are a lot of people doing it, uh, and those who have let's say more of a business background are probably not. They're probably still on batch brew because for economic reasons and mm-hmm. and uh, you know and a lot of good reasons in terms of batch brew to get queues moving and to give the customer what they actually want which is a coffee quick yeah. you know and that sort of stuff and uh, but i think that single serve filter coffee is a thing it's growing and it still has its challenges to find the right solution to meet that need which which matches that sort of you know where did it come from is it being cooked fresh for me from a food viewpoint where did my coffee come from is it being brewed fresh for me mm. you know and just like if you sit down for food or if you go for takeaway food you really do want it to be prepared for you just there and then but yeah. you want it done as quickly as possible if you're going quickly and you want it as pretty much on the time that you want it yeah. when you're sitting down for a meal and i think this is a this is an interesting human stuff you know in terms of like uh, someone going online uh, to buy something or someone going to a shop to buy something the reality is now people 
like interacting with people online until they make a conscious fact to engage with humans. And then they want humans to engage with them properly and in an informed way. Mm -hmm. So they're really needy now. Humans are really needy now. <laughs> Everyone is keen. Yeah, yeah. So how do we meet those needs becomes the challenge. Yeah. And so, well, it seems to me that like that, that the SP9, which is the next incarnation or the splurty, if we're still allowed to call it that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it, I think, well, to me, I'm obviously biased, but like to me represents the best marriage of that. Uh, theatre for want of a better word yeah. and yet the repeatability and consistency that you crave from a batch beer yeah I mean th thank you it's nice of you to say that um, the yeah the SP9 I suppose I'm I'm delighted with the SP9 on a number of fronts one is being able to take something which was uh, very uh, personal in uh, the Uber boiler and we then tried to turn it into an Uber project so it became a culture and a philosophy mm -hmm. uh, in Marco and for SP9 to have come through, if you like, that same school uh, under David uh, in R&D, David Walsh and his team, without me having to be the one doing it, is great. Yeah. It's absolutely wonderful. And then to see it launched and, and, and respected. And I go back to, to why do people like SP9? And I, there's two things strike me. Not everybody likes SP9, let's be clear. Okay, and uh, it's not like selling thousands and thousands, but it's selling to what we wanted to sell in terms of forecast. We're delighted with it. Yeah. Because it meets a certain need of a certain niche. And that need, as we see it, is people who really want to give single serve coffee. And they want to have that same care and attention that James wanted in Square Mile back in 2008, 2009. But they want to do it in a way which is readily available in a busy shop without dropping standards. Yeah. And uh, so that's, uh, while still, you know, allowing the customer those visual cues of excellence. So it's, you know, it's got a bubbly water head, so people know it's happening fresh for you right there. And if, you know, your coffee shop likes to deliver Kalita or Chemex or whatever, and your customers are used to that, then the SP9 enables people to, to, to still have that experience. Mm. That's kind of what we Because I feel like we tried batch brewers from time to time. Um, and I mean that like in the sense that we would try for two months and it would drop off for four months and then we tried again for two months. And the, the problem that we never, okay, the problem we had with it was never consistency or quality. Like we were 100% bought into it. Mm. But the problem was we couldn't get our customers to buy into it. Mm. No matter how much we talked to them, mm. how, how much we made them taste it. Like we went to a phase where we'd, we'd have all the chemicals and everything out and we'd bring them a cup from the batch brewer, ask them how much they like it and then tell them that it was, it was from a, a batch brewer and they'd be like, Oh, and but then they put in, they You've tricked me, you bastard. Yeah, and even if they liked it, they'd yeah. come back and they'd go, can I get a filter coffee yeah. from the Chemex? Yeah. And it was this thing, and it was like we were honour-bound to uh, do it in a more artistic way. Yes, you're right, because the... the you weren't meeting their needs. Yeah. So, I mean, and, this, and like we designed and manufactured batch brewers, but batch brewers meet a very narrow need as well. It happens to be quite a voluminous need, mm. which is why the market is flooded with them because there's quite a lot of filter coffee consumed, particularly in institutions and hotels. and, and So it meets a need of a lot of coffee now, please. Yeah. But if you try and take that to a, I would like a single cup of coffee and I'd like to have, I'd like to have the feeling that I'm singularly important to you who's serving me then if you're going to take it from you know a bath of coffee behind you it doesn't give me that sense yeah. so i think that the needs are about that feeling that that feeling of individuality that whole you know trend of people feeling that they can have everything customized to suit themselves yeah and that it's fresh and that it's, it's fresh and it's mine as a, yeah and i don't want to be the same as everybody else even though everybody knows everybody's the same as their peer group <laughs> i have like a, a, a like a, a small side hobby of mine is talking people through 
how restaurant kitchens work. So, <laughs> like, if because people they go to the restaurant and even if they know it's not true, they like to believe that they'd order their food. And then it goes back and the chef goes, oh, they've ordered that. And then starts, you know, scaling the fish. And, <laughs> and the reality is there's a load of plastic boxes of in front of them and yeah. everything has already been made. So <laughs> when they can't understand why they can't change their order, I'm like, well, that's because everything has already been made. Yes. And it's just assembled and heated. Yeah. And it ruins it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of in the same place. With coffee. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So they won't suffer mise en place. So how far can we bring coffee to, if you like fool the customer but yeah. match their expectation exactly yeah. that's a difficult thing to manage yeah. the one thing that we mentioned earlier there about about the the knock-on effect that the offset uber board or penny university had so mm. when we start using mm. it as, as a filler in a more positive light i've seen for um and probably mostly from marco marco board or, or batch brewers is that at one stage there was a cafe in paris that did really good batch brew mm. and now when you go to a really good cafe in paris it will have batch brew mm-hmm. and everybody will love it and yeah. everybody orders that's it. really interesting isn't it it's like a case study yeah this is how to do it right yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think telescope was nearly the first was it, it probably i don't know yeah. it probably was yeah yeah but, but that's in stark contrast to the rest of europe is it yeah it is but hey they're french you know yeah. <laughs> they like to have it their own way but it is it's very interesting in terms of what informs what what informs people what works best and it, it may also be down to what the first positive experience is. Yeah. So if the first positive experience happened to come from, you know, a 12 litre ugly patch brewer, <laughs> all of a sudden it becomes a Madonna, you know, it's like, yeah. this is, this is what birthed this beautiful experience for me. You know, yeah. it's like the lost puppy who finds the strange creature to be its mother. Completely. And you have an American as one of the figureheads of that scene, which, yeah, which, may which is, which is interesting because of filter coffee being the prevalent yeah. consumption. Yeah. Might also be a, like a contributing factor. So, Marco aside, yeah. you're balls deep in SEA. <laughs> That's very much uh, gone past it almost at this point. Yeah, I am. So how did that all start? Because it seems like, um, from the outside, it seems like when you take a job at Marco, you're uh, you're given two hats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. But, well, I suppose there, there's that's a very important point in that a Drury uh, is hugely supportive of the Speciality Coffee Association. Was he a founding member? He or? was a, I think, he, I don't think a found. I don't think Marco was a final founding member. Possibly, possibly, but certainly a pioneer member in terms of when SCAE in 2000, and I think it's just when I started, about 2004, was about to go under. Whatever people listening might know when Trieste was, I think Trieste nearly dragged the whole association under. Mm. And about 10 companies stood up in an extraordinary meeting where it was all going to be folded and said, and actually, it was typical of Mr. Visionary Drury. I think it was Drury's idea. He said, guys, can we not get 10 companies to give five grand each? And this thing can get going again. And Marco did it. Got, I think it was 20 years membership or yeah. 25 years membership for that 50 grand, for, for that five grand. Yeah. And there was a number of other companies did the same and got SCAE moving again. Yeah. So I suppose he feels a personal connection to it. Um, so therefore, as a result, anything that anybody wants to do in uh, in Marco related to the community and SCAE, he hugely supports, first of all. Because anybody who's involved in SCAE uh, understands that they either have to have personal time to deliver to it or their company has to allow them that time to deliver to it. So anyway, that's that's the background of that. From a personal point of view, you know, if I wasn't a designer, what would I be doing? I'd be a teacher. Really? I love teaching. I, I adore it. And I really enjoy 
sharing knowledge and learning back from people who I tried to share knowledge with. And so if you go back to loop back to the European Team Coffee Challenge, when I we'd been we'd been, you know, talking to our roasters about brewing coffee and, and talking to the Bristol community and the energy and feedback I was personally getting uh, on teaching you know, really fueled my own personal uh, enjoyment of it. So here I am loving coffee, loving what I'm learning about coffee on a daily basis, getting to teach in my profession in, in design and all that sort of stuff. Is there teachers in the family? Or no, where does that come no, from? don't know. No idea. Actually, that's probably a lie because I know that my father, who was a fitter turner, if anybody doesn't know what a fitter turn is, turner is, look it up. <laughs> it's someone who uses their hands to make things, right? And he was a fitter turner by trade. And uh, he... Uh, then uh, became an instructor in what was in Ireland a thing called ANCO, which was the first uh, industry sort of trade training school. Yeah. Uh, but that, he only did that for a very short amount of time and then he died. I was very young. I was three when my father died. Oh. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know much about that that time, but I know that he was an instructor in ANCO just before he died. So I should have answered yes. There, yeah. there, is, there is teaching there. Um, but anyway, uh, on, the, on the teaching front, Education is sort of a, a, a hidden passion of mine, you know, and uh, and of course in SCE, if you're interested in something and you're willing to give time, then they embrace you. And so they said, "You would you do this?" And of course, Jory was saying, "Of course you can. I'll allow you to do that." So I became fully involved in writing the uh, the curriculum for. Uh, the what, what became the first Gold Cup program, the Brewmasters course, where we were talking about the, about about a filter coffee, and myself and the guy called Mike Khan, who's with Lemmerzocco, he was formerly with Bun. The two of us spent a, a day or two in Marco writing the curriculum for Brewmasters, which went on then to be a great success. But then we had to break it because we knew that there was a whole gap in terms of green training, sensory training, roasting training, all that. And I was in, I became uh, chair of the SCE Education Committee, and we created the Coffee Diploma System, uh, which is uh, gives me as much uh, pride and, and personal satisfaction as the Uber Boiler does. Really? Yeah. It's immense how much it's taken off. It's amazing. Like, I'm insanely jealous. It's amazing to have been part of something. And again, you go back to those two things and collaboration. First of all, the brewing thing was done by allegedly arch rivals, Marco and Bun, yeah. myself and Mike. Then the education uh, uh, committee comprised of people from all different categories across the chain, from people in green, people in roasting, people baristas, machine manufacturers, all sharing the desire to give freely of their time to make this thing better. Mm. Amazing experience. And to have that turn into something which benefits the community, hopefully, is hugely rewarding because at the, at the at the onset of that there was um perhaps uh like uh, that people would kind of interpret it as uh, and i'm probably proof of this is that i would when i when i started off in coffee i was like well i wouldn't need to do that course that's right and now i'm looking at it going i used to go do that course yeah uh, the it, it it parallels if you like our, our first experience in marco teaching about extraction and the roasters going I know this stuff, hmm. you know, and what can you tell me? But I'll send my colleague along who's just joined the company, you know, that sort of stuff, because they don't want their personal pride to be wounded. Yeah. Uh, but now I think people are understanding that it's okay to go back to basics. Yeah. Sit in the class. If you know everything, you'll probably meet some people with some interesting ideas about brewing or about green or about roasting or about whatever. And uh, so I, you know, I, I've seen that firsthand when I... 
Um, when we launched the Coffee Diploma System first, I kind of curated an annual training thing in Ireland with SCE Ireland, and the community here did embrace it. And you had people who had been roasting or brewing or whatever for years, turning up and seeing what was to be said and sharing with each other. And everybody got something out of it. Everybody gets something out of learning all the time, I, f I believe. Yeah, because like when, when, I, when I started in coffee, I, I, I entered the competitions. That was, yeah. that was only, your only learning vehicle. That was the best learning vehicle at that time. And I was lucky in the sense that it suited me, mm -hmm. but it doesn't suit everybody. Yes. And some of the, the best baristas that we've ever employed have absolutely tanked yes. the baristic competitions. And it, it, very interesting you say that because only yesterday, because I, I was at an SCE board meeting for the last two days, there was a discussion about the BGE, the Bristol Guild of Europe, and Colab. And, you know, what, uh, why, why don't you do more about competitions at Colab was the question from one of the board members. And, uh, and the answer uh, from Tibor, who's the chair, was that, uh, and Dale was, is on the board as well, so he was also adding to the, to the conversation, was that, well, the majority of baristas aren't competition baristas. So there are a, there's a, a percentage of that community who are absorbed by it, but probably there's enough for them already. Yeah. And collab doesn't need to f to meet that need. Maybe in the future there's a need for a collab specifically for competition. But you know, yeah. your point is is was, was is absolutely true. That not every barista has to be a competition barista nor wants to be. Yeah, and I don't think that education will kill competitions. Not hope. But I do think that it will rise above competitions in the sense that it's it's for everybody. It helps I believe it has already in a very real career way, because we can all think of examples of people that did well in competitions and have yeah. been thrown a huge amount of cash to open a shop and it's absolutely tanked. Or, yeah. Like it's, it's only a reflection of one aspect of yeah. what you do. Yeah, I think that the, the, the competition scene, which is great, is a, almost a funnel, an introductory funnel for people into this amazing industry we work in. And the education is, uh, it's, it's a lifeblood throughout it mm. because I see people who have been in the business I'm in the coffee industry now 12 years and I see people who are still going back again to do further education on the coffee diploma system because for example they've decided they want to get you know better at green mm. you know or they or they never were involved in green buying or they want to know more about it to see if they're being ripped off mm. and uh, so they can now you know yeah. so to have that thread of independent verified data available to the community is fantastic as far as I can see. And it brings in a meritocracy to it yeah. as well because it's... Yeah. Um, and it's standards and as opposed to opinion driven is the idea. So just on the SAE then you're obviously heavily involved and probably in more ways than you've even mentioned there because I'm, 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 I, the nature of that piece is that you get pulled into everything as it is. Mm. It, a lot is always made of how like the SAE and the SAA and we we'll get onto that in, in a second but how they're very different because one is... Uh, one country and the other is many many countries yeah. like how much of a challenge is that actually of bringing those countries together with their different brew methods and different coffee cultures mm. and different languages and currencies and everything is that is that the challenge that people think it is or? Uh, it's a challenge if people see it as a barrier mm. and in early years particularly on the education piece um the barista certification was was incredibly popular mm -hmm. um but it was a source of real division in europe because it was it was either going through its journey of being incredibly Nordic focused or being incredibly Anglo focused or being incredibly Italian focused and it wasn't balanced. Mm -hmm. So what you had was was factions who were effectively saying this is not for me. This is not representative of my culture and what coffee is. So once the 
education committee opened up to embrace that, it became something that one had to uh, reference as opposed to beat down. So previously it was like, no, this is what an espresso is, as opposed to espresso is enjoyed in different ways in different territories around Europe. Mm. And this is what will lend us to taste in those different ways. So you're bringing it back to extraction again? You bring it back to what what do you, what does one do to a coffee to make it taste the way you want it to yeah. taste? And the standards across Europe fit into this area around which one can play. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's because it's, I, I get frustrated with people with, and it's the same thing, but with, they'll use their, they don't call them motors anymore, do they? <laughs> they call them refractometers. Yeah. And it's this thing of like, uh, like how much can you extract rather than, it's a maximum extraction rather than an optimum extraction. Humanity is naturally competitive. Yeah. So when people go into a room and they have a way that they do something, they will always believe they're right. Yeah. And it takes someone to share a greater vision to accept that they might be wrong or there might be a better way. And if you can get people in a room to share ultimately a goal which is bigger than their version of reality, you can win. Otherwise, you'll never win. And before we move on to this merger stuff as well, um, that I know many people are really keen to hear about, with SEA education, mm. like, I think the... Have you ever heard a wine analogy being used in coffee? I think <laughs> it's been done before, has it? What's wine? Yeah, exactly. So they, uh, we have... The sommelier is there. And a sommelier is a, you know... Uh, a profession that is, you know, admired and revered and it's a thing. Whereas a barista, or even if it's a broader term, like a coffee professional, or whatever it's going to be called, how, how far away is that? And, or even is that the goal? No, the goal isn't to be a sommelier of coffee. I think that's the wrong approach. The goal is to be a respected professional. Yeah. And I think that, uh, again, I'll go back to Drury. Uh, Drury had a great line um, a few years ago, which has stuck with me, which we were on a trajectory of something. It could have been trying to break outside of Ireland and UK. It could have been designing a product and trying to launch. It could have been anything. And uh, I remember you saying, uh, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like swimming the channel, guys, right? You're, you're swimming, swimming, swimming the channel between, you know, UK and, Eng UK and England. And you think, Jesus Christ, where? And then you stop and you look behind and you look how far you've come. Yeah. And you go, Wow. It's amazing. Look where I was and look where yeah. I am today. And again, of course, typical Drury says, but then you look forward and you go, well, if I don't keep going, I'm going to drown. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the reality is if I look now, 10 years ago, the barista as a respected profession. Five years ago. I mean, it's enormous, the difference. Yeah. The barista is now a word that's understood. You know, I mean, it wasn't even a word that was understood in, in, in Irish. Uh... People used to think I worked in the four courts if I said I was a <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, like we, we have come so far in, in coffee profession and coffee professions being respected. You know, it no longer is a, an aspirational pipe dream that someone could work in a coffee shop and carve a profession for themselves. Now it's not only a reality, it's, it's like a growing opportunity because it, it's growing as, a, mm. as, a, as an area. And the expertise required to be successful is growing significantly, which means the value which is put on that expertise is growing so people can have a real life and have family and have a mortgage and have, have goodness as opposed to a transient time in their 20s. And that's the thing is that it's, it's building careers because yeah. it's a structured thing and it's... Yeah, it's and, it, and, you know, it's, and a very rewarding career. Anything that's that, for, for me, I think it, it's clear that anything that touches food is a rewarding career. People are so passionate about it. Yeah. You know, be it food or drink or coffee or tea or, you know, people are so passionate about it because it's so personal. Yeah, and it's such a... 
it's such a relationship builder. Yeah. You eat or you drink with people. It's it's uh, yeah. It kicks that all off. So finally, merger. So merger. Merger. So obviously, you were very um, uh, very pro merger uh, within your role at SEA, and a lot of an awful lot of work has been gone into try and get this to go through. Thankfully, well, I say thankfully because I was pro merger as well. Uh, that passed through the SAE right recently, and it's now Friday afternoon. People will be listening to this on Monday. And on Tuesday, we're going to find out if the SEAA mm. has um, has approved it or not. So let's go back a little bit. Where did the talk of this start? Um, where the talk of it starts? Probably even before um, I was involved in the discussion, I'm sure. Um, I mean, if you think activity of it started when the WBC uh, changed to be run by the WCE mm. when SCAA and SCAE created WCE and that's back in 2010 2009 2010 and uh, so that that was really I suppose the 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 starting point or the um or the the first exploration of succeeding together as opposed to you know sharing something and um real talk started to kick in I would say probably about 4 years ago around about four years ago, of substance, you know, mm. of, of maybe maybe a little bit more. And uh, and then it's... Who asked who? Who asked who? <laughs> I think, but I think that, I mean, where, where did it all come from is yeah. probably a worthwhile thing. And I think that where it came from is uh, people who have been involved in specialty coffee or speciality coffee, and I choose both pronunciations to be politically correct, uh, for a number of years to understand the trajectory and the potential and the potential downfall. Yeah. And uh, when it got to a point where, if you look back over the, the arc of 10 years, when it gets to a point that it's no longer America doing this and Europe doing that, it's what the global association is, or the global community is doing. It's like, well, you know, it's becoming a bit awkward when we meet each other outside of Europe and outside of USA, and we're both tendering to do the same thing. Yeah. And it becomes competitive. And... That's not good because we're confusing, you know, the community we're trying to evangelize, if you like, in terms of doing things properly and making specialty coffee a bigger and greater part of the coffee industry. Uh, so why are, why are we doing this? You know, so it became a question of like uh, what could be as well as shit, look at what, what might be mm. if we don't unify. And, um, and so that, they're sort of the genesis of it. But I think ultimately it got a real shot in the arm when you things like uh, leaf rust uh, coming up a few years ago and you've, you know, things like the, the future of the species, you know, these sort of talks about there will be no more coffee. Mm. And it sounds very dramatic, but anybody who listens to Tim Schilling, it's like this is not uh, uh, some sort of uh, fairy tale story. You know, if, if the coffee industry doesn't look after coffee for itself, considering the growth in coffee consumption, I mean coffee totally, not just specialty coffee, then there's going to be a real fight over who gets the coffee. And there will always be coffee, but it'll get worse and worse and homogenized to meet the need as opposed to diverse and specialized. Yeah. And uh, so those sort of challenges like, like leaf rust, like a supply chain, and then of course, because again of the, the wonderful thing of, uh, of connectivity, because people's eyes are now open to what's happening at Origin and all those things, all of these things which people in specialty coffee, for the most part, care about, they kind of itch. It's like this is not right. This isn't good. What you know? What are we doing fighting over who wins education courses in China? 
Yeah, it's a waste of it. You know, energy. it's a waste of energy. What, imagine what we could do together. Mm. You know, imagine what we could do together if, if the, the, the global community shared a vision to do things right and still at the heart of it is this amazing product we can all enjoy and develop. I mean, that's a really powerful thing. Mm. And, uh, and then if you get people who currently enjoy what they have and don't want to give it up, of course they're going to give it away. They're, they're, not, they're not going to like it because they feel they might lose something of their own personal identity or maybe they're, they're, mm. they're tied to what was in the past. But the bigger picture for me is like, you know, the possibilities are endless. It's, a, it's funny that you mentioned what Tim Schilling was saying about the homogenization of the co- of coffee in terms of what you're going to get in your cup. But it's funny that, that like, what is a very diverse and broad spectrum of people coming together for a collective goal is being interpreted as a desire to make something homogenous in the sense that we will all lose our coffee culture and well i mean i think this goes back to even the, the, the when we were just talking about you know the brist certification people come to it with a fixed view they're comfortable with what they have they're afraid of what may be and they lose control of what they have and it's an understandable human emotion so i can understand the queries understand the questions and you know there's been a lot of talk about the past presidents in in the scaa because they went public with their views when we were doing the scae vote we had the past presidents of a number of years ago send a very worried letter to us in the board and i'm the current president of the board but what we did was we sat down with them all we met them we talked about their concerns we explore, explained what their what the what our vision of it was and what we were trying to do protecting the integrity of the founders in the past and we did a webinar to catch those who couldn't uh, meet us and 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 wrote an official letter back to them to 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 consider their concerns. They said thank you very much. Some of them still decided to vote against, but they didn't cause a public outcry, yeah. you know. And it became, I think, a bit of a shame that it became a a big story in recent weeks in the speciality community that past presidents versus past presidents. And you know, all of these guys have done amazing things for specialty coffee. All of those guys in America who are against it, we should respect their position and thank them for what they've done and understand that they don't want it to go forward yeah. as opposed to trying to denigrate each other's position. We feel it's better from a board position in SCAE. Overwhelmingly, the SCAE community did as well. And the SCAA now will ask their members if they want to unify. And if they do, we will. And if they don't, we won't. And we have to honour that. Yeah. And uh, my own view is I believe that they will honour it. And I think they will say yes. And I think we will unify. And we will spend the next year making a complete mess of trying to do that. But ultimately, we'll do a good job. Excellent. Well, I, for one, am um, very hopeful that it will pass. I think it, it's, it means great things for people. And I, I look at how uh, myself and a lot of my contemporaries enter this kind of meandering career path in the coffee industry and look... I think with jealousy at what's in place now and mm. kind of see how um, people can advance themselves in their career in coffee uh, through structures that you and the people at SCAE have put in place. So I think you've a lot to be proud of. Mm, thank and thank you for squeezing that into one hour. Super. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli.